The Bible talks about musical worship and having skilled musicians, and I'm always thankful every Sunday that we have skilled musicians that can help the rest of us. You might be skilled, I'm not, so I like a little help along the way, and uh, it's great to be encouraged. I probably mention it too often, at least in my prayers, but the Bible says we're not only to sing to the Lord, we're to sing to one another. And that always sticks in my mind as well, how encouraged I am by hearing other believers sing things that are true about God and how it helps lift my soul and encourage me. I hope, hope it encourages you as well. I have too many things up here this morning, but I want to start by asking for a little bit of your help. I have my Bible here. Um, I have a, a Greek text, so an original text, and I want to read the first two words of a book of the Bible, um, but I have a post-it note over the book. So I, you're going to have to help me figure out what book of the Bible I'm reading from. Um, I'm going to read the first two words in Greek, but I think you're all smart enough to, to maybe figure out where, but I need you to help me figure out where I am before I take the post-it note off and ask the rest of you to turn to that text. Ready? If you're a Greek scholar, you can't participate, okay? So the two words that open this book of the Bible are biblos, geneseos. Biblos, geneseos, and the second word comes from genesis. Biblos means book, the book of genesis. Hmm, wonder where that is. The book of genesis. But the fact of the matter is, if I peel my sticker back, and you all did well, good job, pat, pat yourself on the back, high self-esteem, feeling good. Um, Biblos Genesis. It says, kata mathion, according to Matthew. I'm actually in the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, first letter of the New Testament, and I would invite you to turn to Matthew's gospel account, but I do want you to know that it is... The new Genesis, it is the new beginning actually, and Matthew on purpose, even though our translations translate it genealogy, first two words, it's the book of Genesis, it's the book of beginnings, because indeed as we'll see later, it is the book of new beginnings, it is the book of better new beginnings, it's even better than the first Adam, we're talking about the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we'll do this morning is we'll look at the opening 17 verses. I'll put my Greek text away. And uh, open, opening 17 verses, and we're going to read the genealogy. And then look at some highlights regarding the genealogy. So if you just follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of 
Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And if you follow it along with me without checking your emails or whatever it might have been, you should feel even better about yourself. And I feel really good about myself because I did a pretty good job pronouncing names that I'm not familiar with. So I'm just going to pat myself on the back. I got a couple a little bit off from the way I practiced. But what we're going to do this morning is not do an in-depth study of each one of those names, uh, though we could do that and there's value in doing such things. What we are going to do this morning uh, would be look at some highlights, some takeaways that will prepare us to study the rest of the book. This Genealogy is very, very, very important, so we're not downplaying it at all, but the important part ultimately is Christ, and so what we're going to do today, again, is prepare ourselves for our study of the rest of the the book, but some highlights, some striking highlights about the genealogy of Jesus. Striking highlight number one, Jesus is the key to the new beginning. Jesus is the key to the new beginning. And as we saw in the introduction, the book of the beginning of Jesus Christ or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, no doubt it's no accident with our Genesis word uh, that, that it says it that way. Surely it's on purpose. Jesus is, is, is the, the new beginning. He's the better beginning. It's not just, a, as Rick Warren said years ago in one of his Christmas sermons, it's not that God's giving us a mulligan. Okay, that's not the Christmas message. Jesus is not a mulligan, start over like he said. The reality is because of Jesus and what he's accomplished, his work is done. We're not getting a do-over. We're getting guaranteed a perfect score, a perfect game, a flawless game if you want to use the analogy. Sure, secure. In chapter 1, we're going to see next week, he didn't come to make people save a bull, mulligan talk. Hopefully you have a better hit the next time. No, he came to save his people from their sins. Strength, power, purpose, accomplishment. He is the key to the new beginning, the new Genesis. Remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is called the last Adam. Okay, so we have the first Adam and we have the last Adam, the two formal representatives of the entire human race. In the first Adam, Romans 5 would have us to know we're under condemnation. 
So he led the human race into sin. And under the last Adam's representation, we have justification by faith in him. It's not that we will be justified maybe if we do enough. It is Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore, having been what? Justified, we have present possession, peace with God. It's secure, better. Sometimes Bible students talk about the first Adam. Uh, he was made good. We know that. Uh, and so how can we describe good, but Jesus is better? Uh, the, the, he's fallible, and, and Jesus uh, overcame, all, overcame all of the temptations and secured eternal life for us. So they say things like, Christians say things like, uh, at, the first Adam was created in, in unconfirmed righteousness. So God could say, good, true, yes, but... And then we talk about the last Adam, confirmed righteousness, tempted, tried, tested, a lot of similarities for sure, tempted by the devil, right? But he overcame, he succeeded, and we're going to see that throughout our study of the gospel according to Matthew. It's going to be amazing, right? Really. But he's the key. He's the key to the whole thing. I've never done that before in my life. Too much pop culture. I guess. I don't know. Matthew is one of my one of my favorite books. I was gonna say Genesis is my favorite book, or one of my favorite books, especially the one we call Matthew. Okay. Blew it. Second service, I'll get it right. It's gonna sound better. But we move on to number two, because we don't have a second service. Next striking feature. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. And that should sound obvious to your ears living in America in the 21st century. Jesus is the Christ, Jesus Christ, because we tend to think either A, it's his last name, because we don't know better, or, or we hear it together so many times that Jesus Christ is not striking. But it's meant to actually be striking. Even Matthew himself doesn't normally call Jesus, Jesus Christ or Christ. I think he does something like 17 times he calls him that. And he normally refers to him as Jesus, like 150 times. It's meant to stand out in our genealogy, Jesus Christ. Or even, it goes on to say in our genealogy, Jesus, or excuse me, he is the Christ. He is the Christ. So what's the significance? Hope everyone could tell me the answer. If I quizzed you after the service, I won't. Maybe your parents will if you're a child. Maybe your kids will if you're a parent. Maybe your neighbor will. What does Christ mean? This is basic Christianity. You should know. Even if you're new to the whole thing, at least you'll know. Christ means Messiah. Messiah is the Old Testament word. Christ is the New Testament word, and they mean the exact same thing. Literally, it means anointed. Okay, So to be anointed with oil, which would be symbolic for different things in the Old Testament world and throughout different centuries. But significantly, if he is the Christ, this is something that happens when kings are anointed in a ceremony. If you're going to be the king, you're going to go through a certain ceremony. There might be a crowning. There might be other things. There might be repeat after me kind of things. But there is going to be in the Old Testament world, in the New Testament world, a sacred, special, symbolic anointing with oil that you are are blessed. Okay, it's a blessing kind of word. You are favored. You are blessed. And throughout the Old Testament, we have these kings who are anointed. There are many messiahs. There are many anointed kings. If they represent God, the ultimate one throughout the Old Testament is going to be David, and we'll get to him. 
anointed, anointed by God, specially blessed by God. So when we have Jesus Christ, He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one the Bible talked about in the Old Testament. He is the, and if you're a good king, it means you provide, it means you protect, okay? It means you encourage, okay? It means you do these, you deliver, right? You save in temporary senses. All of this would be wrapped up, and I'm not reading too much into Messiah. A good Messiah, a good Messiah King, a good Christ is going to provide and protect, take care of, encourage, save when necessary. Well, Jesus is referred to as the Christ, the Deliverer, the specially, uniquely anointed by God, one that we've been waiting for, that all of those other kings were shadows and types. Looking forward to the ultimate one. He's the one. That's what, that's what Matthew's saying. Okay. Matthew's gospel is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. He's the ultimate protector. He's the ultimate provider. He's the, he's not the tyrant king. He's the one who encourages. He's the one who says, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. He's that kind of king. He's the idyllic king. To use another word I've never used before in my life. The ideal king. Isn't it fun when you read books, you pick up all this vocabulary you've never used before, and then you hear it come out of your mouth, and you're like, where did that come from? He's the Messiah. We're not waiting for something more extraordinary. He's the one. That's what Matthew's claiming, and he's going to argue his case throughout this gospel account. So, Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, or the Christ in verse 17. This will relate to the next one, but let's move to the next one. Number three, another striking feature of the genealogy, Jesus is the son of David. Or I should say it a different way, Jesus is the son of David. Okay, let's go ahead and look where it says it right there in verse one. We already heard it. The son of David. David is the most esteemed king in the history of Israel. And now we have the son of David. And he doesn't mean... And his other name is Solomon. He doesn't mean he actually had a child named Jesus Christ. It means it's a genealogy. He's in the line of David. Okay, He's related. Genealogy of David. He's going to do the same thing with Abraham. He's the one who comes in that particular important line. You can either write it in the margin of your Bible or type it on the screen if you'd like, or you can look it up. But I'm going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Because 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13 represent this promise to David that God makes. To David that one will come in his line who will rule and reign how long? Forever. Okay, so this is Psalm 2 stuff. This is Acts chapter 2 stuff. This is... Romans, I think 16 off the top of my head. This is in Hebrews. All kinds of cross-references. He's the one. What Matthew's doing is he's connecting the dots. He's saying 2 Samuel 7 and all the other texts, it's him. He's the one who's going to rule and reign forever. He's the ultimate anointed king. He's the, the son of David. And what do we call it when we reference this promise that's made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13? We call it, as Christians, shorthand, we give it a label, we call it the what? We call it the Davidic covenant. It's the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7 doesn't use the word covenant. Okay? So shame on those who say 
It's not a covenant if the word isn't there because everyone, everyone agrees this is the Davidic covenant, right? If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, sounds like a duck, it's probably not a hippo, okay? This is the Davidic covenant, the ultimate oath that God swears to David in his line. Second Samuel 7 verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and here's the best part at the end and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then when when you keep reading you go, but actually Solomon doesn't fit the bill and he sins and he dies. And you can't rule and reign forever if you're dead. Right? And Peter picks up on this in the book of Acts. David, David can't fulfill this because David's still in the grave dead. Has to be someone unique, special, extraordinary, coming in the line of David who will rule and reign forever. The ultimate good king coming from the good king's line, if you will. It's Christ. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. This is, this is huge. This is extraordinary. This is special. One interesting thing is when we read through our, our, our gospel account, Matthew's gospel account, frequently, frequently he's called the son of David when people need help. And that, that's why I said I wasn't reading too much into Messiah when I said encouraging, providing, not tyrannical. We need help. Son of David. Good king. Not a mean king who's in it for himself, but in it for those who he's providing for. It's also used for him in the triumphal entry or the not-so-triumphal entry because it's royal, son of David. As a bit of an aside before, you guys ready to move on to the next one? Or should we do the aside? This is interactive. Someone text me. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Only one time... um, did my friend Chris Ennis text me while I was preaching and something weird happened. It came up on my screen. It usually can't. And I happened to be having you turn somewhere else or do something else. So I texted him back and I said, don't text me while I'm preaching. He said, how did you do that? So I just texted you. So it's turned off. So don't text me right now. <laughs> I have enough weird ideas happening in my mind all of the time. I don't need to be distracted. Where were we? As an aside, before we move on, Davidic covenant, you know something else that's going to happen as an aside when we read through uh, Matthew's gospel account is we are going to understand the Old Testament better, okay? We have a divine interpretation of the Old Testament and even of the Davidic covenant because I'm one for sure who thinks you can't read, you can't understand the New Testament without the old and I don't really think you can understand the old without the new, okay? So we're going to see. Okay. Contrary to what some would suggest, I, I met a gentleman years ago. He was a president of a seminary, not the one I went to, but a different esteemed seminary. He was a gentleman, super kind, way nicer than me. Uh, but in his book um, that I have right down here, I read it when I was in seminary because somebody told, him, told me it was a good book to read. But he says on page 300 that for the promise to David to be fulfilled, David has to be resurrected and rule and reign on earth. I think that's crazy sauce. Jesus is going to make it clear that it, or excuse me, Matthew's going to make it clear that it's Jesus. 
Not to mention the book of Acts chapter 2. It for sure is Jesus. Okay? So we're going to learn how to be better readers and understanders of our Old Testaments. Okay? Yes, David's important. Yes, he has to come in, he has to come in the line of David, but it's not actually David. David is a type. David, David is an example, but he's not the antitype ultimate one. And now all of a sudden we have David being the ruler reigner forever. By the way, 2 Samuel 7 doesn't have David doing it. It has someone from his offspring doing it. Crazy cray cray sauce is what it is. Okay? Christ-centered perspective on all of history. He is the high point one. Okay? So unashamedly, I'm going to encourage you to learn from Matthew to read the whole Bible like a Christian. That's the aside. Let's go to number four. Number four, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Again, not actual son, uh, but in the line of. We see it there at the end of verse one. The son of Abraham. What's so special about that? If I put you on the spot. What's the big deal about Abraham? Can I give you a hint? Father Abraham. And if you went to Sunday school growing up, you get it. Otherwise, you think that guy's a terrible singer. Both might be true. He's the father of the faith, right? He, he's the example from the Old Testament and the New Testament, like in Hebrews chapter 4, that, that he's the one. God made a great promise to him, a covenantal promise. God swore under oath that he would be faithful to Abraham and he would use Abraham in a great, 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 great way to bless the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus is the one who is key to fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. I'll just read Genesis chapter 12. It's one place where we could learn about it. We could go to chapter 15. We could go to 17. We could go to 18. But Genesis 12, 3 says this, says this, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, he's talking to Abram, in you all the families of the earth, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if we were to keep reading and we were to read the New Testament as well, both teach it, ultimately it's, it's, it's the blessing of justification freely by faith and by faith alone because of the finished work of Christ alone. Jesus is the one. This can't happen. This won't happen apart from Jesus being the son of Abraham. He's the key. He's the one. Gentiles included. All the families of the earth. Listen to what it says in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Oh, son of Abraham. He's the one connecting the dots. Matthew's going to help us connect the dots as well. He's the son of Abraham. He's, he's, he's how. He is the vehicle through which God will bless the entire world. Meaning Jew and Gentile. Abrahamic covenant happens through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.8, this is a great one. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, so it's not just Jewish, it's also non-Jewish, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Matthew, it's a great gospel account, son of Abraham. He's the true seed. Through him, all the nations will be blessed. You know, sometimes people say Matthew is the Jewish gospel. I think I've said that before. 
A lot of Jewish emphasis for sure. It's, it's the one I would want to share with Jewish people if I had the earnest opportunity to do that. But, but I want to revise my statement a little bit. Compared to Mark, Mark is very, very Gentile driven. But the more I think about Matthew, Matthew, if Jesus is the son of Abraham, it's both. Because it is through Abraham that God will bless not only the Jewish people, but the nations, it says, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And then think with me. Book ends. Chapter 1, verse 1. Son of Abraham, nations, therefore. Chapter 28, verses 19 and following. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the Jews. No, it doesn't say that. Go therefore, based upon this power that's been given to me, all authority has been given to me, not just for the Jews, but for, for, for everyone. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, all different kinds of people, because I'm the one and only Savior. So it's definitely a Jewish gospel account, and it's definitely a Gentile gospel account. He's the, he's the son of Abraham. Let's move on to number five. Another striking feature, Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. He's the ultimate deliverer. And the reason I want to highlight this for you is I think it's built in to the emphasis on Babylon. I think it's important to see Babylon as a historical marker, but also what it represents is important. So in verse 11, it's uh, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12, also deportation to Babylon, historical marker. Down in verse 17, deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, historical marker. Uh, also moving on, deportation to Babylon, historical marker. But unless you don't know anything about the Old Testament, deportation to Babylon, deportation to Babylon, deportation to Babylon, deportation to Babylon isn't, you, isn't reminding you of the simpler times. It's not reminding you of the good old days. <laughs> it's, it's reminding you of oppression. It's reminding you of bondage. It's reminding you of slavery. It's reminding you of persecution. It's reminding you of bad things. Okay, why'd you have to go and bring that up? Because you need to be delivered. You need to be rescued. You need to be set free. You need to have a good, generous, forever ruling, reigning, anointed Messiah, Christ, King in the line of David is why. So I think it's built in as a little reminder, he's the one who will free us from all oppression. He's the one who will deliver us in that sense. From Genesis to Revelation, we have Babylon. And Babylon is tied to rebellious beginnings, symbolic of the Antichrist evil world, evil world system, used most commonly in a literal sense in the Old Testament, but used in a non-literal sense in the New Testament like in 1 Peter. That's why we joke sometimes, because we're living in Babylon. This is our little Babylon called Omaha. Because this is not Christ's good, forever ruling, reigning kingdom. He's got to return for that to happen. Babylon, 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 Babylon. It's reminding them that He is the one who will free them from all Babylon-like oppression. Redemption, deliverance. Let's move on to number six. 
Another striking feature, Jesus is related to the right sinners. Jesus is related to the right sinners. I hope that sounds odd. I wanted it to sound odd. I do think it sounds odd. He gives the genealogy. It's not exhaustive. He's not trying to be exhaustive. Usually genealogies are given to show enough and to make a certain kind of emphasis or emphasis. It's why Luke's account is different. It goes back to Adam. But genealogies are meant to show the tie and the, the, the tie back, but it's also meant to, to make a certain kind of point, a particular kind of point. And it seems like this one does it. There are some names uh, that I would have left out. Okay? I'm, I'm afraid to take a genetic test because I'm afraid who I might be related to. Well, Jesus knew who he was, was related to and he wasn't afraid, in fact, readily accepted. So in ours, we have people, I'll just name one, like Rahab. Rahab's a prostitute. I believe I would have left her out. We have children born because of adultery. Talked about in the genealogy. If I were making up this religion, I could, I could do a better job. But the right people are included. Oh yes, we've got to have the, 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 the David and the Abraham and other important people and it's a legitimate genealogy. It can stand scrutiny. It can stand the test of time. But on purpose, no doubt, we have Gentiles in the genealogy. Gentiles who wear their Gentilian bad behavior sometimes on their shirt sleeve. Because again, Jesus is the one who will bless all different kinds of people. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles. And I just want to remind you too that sometimes commentaries and you're reading them and they're like, oh, and, and, and Matthew chose to put bad people in the genealogy. And it might be a really good idea to remember a little bit about the history of Abraham. And it might be a really good idea to remember a little bit about the history of David. PG-13 at best. The whole list is filled with sinners. Just different kinds. But they're filled with the right sinners to show that he's the one, but he's also the one that loves and cares for. And when he comes to save his people, chapter 1, verse 21, from their sins, yep, they definitely need it. Let's move on to the next one. Number seven, Jesus, another striking highlight, Jesus is human and divine. He is human and divine. If we look ahead just a little bit in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Overpowered by the Spirit, we'll see that next time. So we have his mother Mary, real human being, uniquely pregnant apart from Natural causes, apart from Joseph. We're definitely going to emphasize in this letter and see it emphasized. He's divine, God with us, unique, extraordinary, special. But we're also, also going to see that he's a real human being. And it's really important that we do that. Nine out of ten of people I know outside of this church 
Nine out of ten people I know can't give a really good explanation regarding the humanity of Jesus. Especially people who've studied the Bible for a long time. In part, that's because of a heritage that lots of us come out of. And the founder of that heritage almost denied the humanity of Christ. F.F. Bruce, the New Testament scholar, said it has led to, what does he say about that? The besetting heresy of evangelical Christians. The besetting heresy of evangelical Christians, they don't have a clear, biblical, robust category for why Jesus has to be a human being. And from the very start here, we see unique, yes, virgin conceived from above, not through Joseph, but Mary really is his mom. He really is a human being, okay? What we're going to see by way of preview, I'll tell you now, is we're going to see Jesus looking a lot like the first Adam, a real human being. Tempted, tested, suffering, all of these things, and he's victorious. He obeys his father perfectly, does all of the right things, because as human beings, we need a representative who is actually one of us. So we're going to see both. We'll stress both of them as we go. Number eight, I met a guy one time, I was preaching in Nashville. This is an aside. I was preaching in Nashville, and it's, it's kind of fun to preach in Nashville because at least the church where I was preaching, they just had like normal people doing mu- music, and it wasn't like, you know, flashy flash. Um, and, and yet, you know, the person I was with is like, that guy over there? Microphone's here. That guy over there? He wrote such and such a song for Elvis, you know? That woman playing the violin? She played the violin on whatever song for Led Zeppelin. I was like, this is kind of cool. I like celebrities. Probably shouldn't, but I do. Anyway, all of that to say, the Elvis guy. The Elvis guy said, I never thought about why Jesus had to be a human being before. I said, I'm glad you know now from the book of Hebrews. But I digress. I just wanted to tell you about the Elvis guy. You guys look like you needed a break, that's all. Number eight, Jesus is not an afterthought. Jesus is not an afterthought. We're going to learn that from even our genealogy. This is on purpose. This is according to a certain point in time. Think about this. The reason Mary's pregnant is because redemptive history is pregnant. This is what we've been waiting for. This is all calculated. This isn't like, oh, whoa, where did this come from? No, stressed in, here's the genealogy. This is happening at a certain point in time. And I I think that's true, but I actually know that's true based upon inspired interpretation because Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, the pregnancy of time come to term, right? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Our genealogies are reminding us that this isn't an afterthought. This is how it's supposed to be. This is according to plan. We don't have time. I want to go there. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. It's an eternal purpose. It's called the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what's going on here. As a plan for the fullness of time. That's what's going on here. It's all calculated. It's not an afterthought. It's all on purpose. Think about this with me, if you would. When when did we start waiting for this to happen? Since when were we waiting for this to happen? 
Yeah, Genesis 3, since the fall, right? Since the fall, since the promise. Genesis 3.15, we call it the, 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 the first gospel. The promise is there that there would be a crushing of Satan's head. Probably since then. And I'm not alone when I read these verse, these words and think about this reality. That's Genesis 3.15. This is Genesis 4.1. This is Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. I don't want to read too much into that, but I'm not the only one. People with lots of letters behind their names who are Bible believers would say, probably wondering, is this the one who's going to crush Satan? Is this it? Is he the one? God made the promise. And generation after generation after generation after generation, and now sweet, young Mary. Yep, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Redemptive history has come to term. Mary's the one. Number nine, number nine and ten, let's wrap it up. Jesus is the ultimate example. Jesus is the ultimate example. We'll learn that in our study of Matthew. I'm not going to give you anything from the genealogy. This is just preview. Jesus is the ultimate example. He'll speak the truth. He'll do everything perfectly. And in that sense, He will be the ultimate example. He will love God and neighbor, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything He does will be the perfect example. And if you're not trusting him in Him as Savior, it's anything but good news. Okay? It's just strict law. Law personified. Everything. How would you like to be His brothers, right? There's a reason that James didn't believe until later. The elder brother who always does everything right. Always. Everything. Can you imagine? He fulfilled all righteousness. I would hate to have him as my older brother. And in one sense, I I want you to hate to have him as an example if you're not united to him by faith. It's it's designed to convict. Okay? So what we're not going to do is say, oh, here, look, Jesus is a perfect example. If we can just work hard enough at following him, God will accept us. No, he won't. So I'm not going to preach it that way. But then we need to see number 10. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Savior. Chapter 1, verse 21. We have to know this from the beginning. He came to save His people from their sins. He's going to show us our sins by being the perfect example, but He came to save His people from their sins. Deliverance. He's going to do it. And so we'll we'll see how awesome he is. We'll see how amazing he is. He always does everything right. But he's going to give himself to save people from their sins. Okay, so that's the extraordinary part. Now, if you're in Christ by faith and you have been saved by him because you're trusting in him, he's a great example. How to do, you, you should do the right thing. You want to do the right thing. You want to follow Jesus because he's doing what's right. And so we'll emphasize it that way also. We'll emphasize it that way also. Do know this, finally. 
Matthew starts the book this way on purpose. So let's read it that way. Let's not go, we get to the end. Oh, crucifixion, salvation, wonderful. It's not a surprise ending. And all the stuff that he does isn't just to show that he's so awesome, even though we're going to see he's so awesome. All that's happening somehow fits into the redemptive scheme. We're supposed to read the narrative thinking he's the Savior. So his whole life is going to be doing the right thing. His whole life is going to be suffering, culminating with going to the cross, ultimate act of suffering, ultimate act of obedience. But we're going to read it knowing how it ends because Matthew wants us to do that. It's going to be great. It's going to be grand. I can't wait. I love to preach gospel accounts for lots of different reasons. But one reason I love to preach gospel accounts is because we see Jesus doing all the right things on our behalf and we praise him for that. Another reason though is we see Jesus interacting with all kinds of people. And so he's going to interact with people who are abused by religious crazies. He's going to interact with people who are the religious crazies. He's going to interact with people who love to quote Bible verses and they're still lost. He's going to interact with people who don't know Bible verses and they're lost. He's going to interact with young people. He's going to interact with older people. He's going to interact with men. He's going to interact with women. He's going to interact with rich people. He's going to interact with poor people. All different kinds of people. As the Savior of the world, it makes sense. But I also, I like it for that reason. But I also like it because we interact with all different kinds of people. So we're going to see the gospel in action, if you will. And we love to tell people about the gospel, all different kinds of people. And so I think it equips us for evangelism and it helps us uh, as a byproduct of what we're going to learn. So let's pray and be done. Father, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save his people from their sins. We are very thankful uh, to know him uh, according to your grace. We're very thankful that he came here and did everything right and was crucified and was raised from the dead on our behalf. And we want to live in gratitude unto him because indeed he is a great, great, great savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.